Hello, and welcome to the Nodcast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Pork Wenton. And welcome to the 147th episode of the Nodcast titled The Noose, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Theon 6, in which Theon continues to be, yeah, the worst person in the world. Only for someone even worse to show up and break his face. Who is this person? Reek, I believe. Is that his name? Something like that. But, you know, to quote the indisputable cinematic masterpiece, Star Wars The Phantom Menace, there's always (laughs) a bigger fish. And that's what we see here with Ramsay Snow. Right. Yeah. So does that make Ramsay the Palpatine in this uh, analogy that you're using here? I think more Darth Maul, I guess, with that uh, armor he rides up in at the end of the chapter. Ramsey with a double-bladed lightsaber would be great, but he'd probably, like, you know, cut off his horse's head and just, like, flail around with it or something. It'd yeah. be sad. Yeah, that sounds very sad and very terrifying and horrifying <laughs> as well. Yeah, but that's exactly what happens here in this chapter. What a, what a fucking horrifying chapter. I can't wait to do this with you, sir. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our not-a-small-council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, Lord Jacob Stitt, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, the Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War in the East Meshes of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tit Stent, the Troglodyte Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Ambassador Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies, and Gentle Dems, Holdover, the Wait for T-Wild, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the First for Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portia's the Brown, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, The Dead Shipper Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall. Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils, wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden. Lord Paramount the Mander. Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Master of Zorse. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt S. Future Matt S. The One Who Bring Balance to the Kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Gold, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Field of Good Times, Lady Ivory Dame, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warnings of the South, and Patron Free, Wheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, She Who Suggests That Coconuts Migrate, Lord Christoph of Arendelle, Official Ice Master and Deliverer, The Valiant Pungent, Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to His Ginger Sweet Love, Queen Anna. And... 
Our, well, he was our newest small council member last week, but I actually, this week, actually, I got his name correct. So our newest small council member from, not a small council member from last week, whose name is now Lord Sir Septon Ruthers. Thank you to all of our not a small councillors. Thank you, councillors, very much, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as the Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So we have a question from Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices, that we're going to use for our discussion topic at the end of the episode. But here at the top, we wanted to read some of the reviews you all have left for us. We really appreciate those who take the time to write reviews for us. We wanted to read them aloud as a small way of saying thanks. Our first review comes from Atlas, Our Lady of Knowledge, who writes, I had already read this series three times before coming across this podcast and deciding to reread it for a fourth, along with the two podcast hosts. Their insights are always shedding new light on a series I thought I already knew, forwards and backwards, and provide an extra level of depth to a story already full of depth. I have a new appreciation for all the characters, thanks to this podcast, and I can't wait for the day Jeff finally admits that Sansa Stark <laughs> is his favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not true, gonna happen. True. I'm not gonna admit that Sansa Stark is my favorite character. I mean, she's a great character. I mean, come on. Like I uh I even said that last week when we did Sansa, right? I'm like, I I've newfound appreciation. I feel like I have to like freaking like qualify every single time we have a Sansa chapter and I just you Any know, day now, folks. Any day now. We're grinding him down bit by bit. I, I, She'll I just, be his favorite character before you know it. I, I just want everyone to <laughs> well <laughs> I just want everyone to know. That in the event that you're in the year 2016, don't ever tweet about Sansa Stark. That's all I have to say about about Sansa Stark. And uh, yeah, so thank you, Atlas, for for the review. We, we really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's it's great that you'll be able to pick on pick on new areas of appreciation for the series. And for me, like I, I feel the same way when I when I read Emmett's stuff and I listen to him when I do like the uh, when I do the edit edits of the episodes. That I really appreciate that. Sweet Melissa writes, these guys provide a very detailed analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire. I love that you can tell how much work they put into their research. They know their stuff, and I appreciate their devotion to their craft. That's a really nice short review there. I mean, it, it is a lot of work, but I, I enjoy doing the work. Don't you enjoy it too? Absolutely. Like, it's, uh, it's I, you know, we did uh, ASWAF essays for just uh you know on our own on our lonesome for fun and doing them together or just to makes it all the more fun and doing them for for people who love hearing about it makes it the more fun than i could possibly imagine yeah it doesn't it, uh, it's a labor of love for sure so it's a uh, so wonderful to read that review thank you so much Lady Veronica, the abandoner of the children at the end of the crossroads, writes, This podcast is poetic analysis, informed discussion, and amazingly relatable commentary on the greatest fantasy series of all time, and I'm pretty addicted to it. It's a shame they're such Stannis haters. I can understand where they're coming from a lot of the time, but they sure do keep the Stannis talk to a minimum. They never bring him up unless they have to. I just had one question, though, that's never been answered. Did Jeff go to war? And also, who is Jeff? True. Rich, enigmatic, cryptic questions that will... Puzzle at the soul of mankind all throughout the ages. Who even is this Jeff character? I don't and why know who, does he never talk about Stannis? I don't talk about Stannis. That's true. I never talk about Stannis. Is he in the books? Is he? Is he a POV sure the character? show invented him? As oh, a character, in fact, right, 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 right. Not right. in the books at all. Yeah, he's the one that's played by Peter Dinklage. Is my corrected in thinking that's that's who Stannis is? <laughs> I wish now. Just to, <laughs> okay, Peter Dinklage trying to make the Stannis stone face the entire series. <laughs> no one addressing that it's Peter Dinklage. That would be hysterical. That would be hysterical. So yeah, so thank you, Veronica, for for the review. That's that's really awesome. Yeah, I, I, I yes, I went to war one time, and who am I? I don't know. I, I'm still trying to figure that out. So 
What a, what a wonderful answer that was. That was bloody Shakespearean, sir. Well done. Everyone should be having the same mindset. You're always trying to figure yourself out in the, in the long term. And so who are you? Maybe you'll know by the end of your life, but most likely probably not. So finally for today, Kara Marie writes, that's a little bit dark. Kara Marie writes, I found this podcast while going through some kind of spiritual awakening type thing last year and thought, ah, this will be good. Easy listening to balance me out. Wrong. Who would have thought a podcast about a fantasy series could get so deep? I find myself saying along, amen, brother, and meaning it. Not only do these guys <laughs> dig deep into literary analysis, military slash global history, cultural issues, and the human condition, they're also just perfectly matched hosts. Yeah, we are perfectly matched. That's great. Each bringing a clever perspective to the table in their own unique ways. The only thing I question is, how does Jeff talk so fast? It's a mystery. The podcast is truly enjoyed to listen to. Thank you. <laughs> okay, what you actually said is, the only thing I question is, how does Jeff talk so fast? It's a mystery. This podcast is truly a joy to listen to. Thank you. Hmm. Damn right. We're just going to take it very slow after that. No, of course. We both are. <laughs> so thank you so much to everyone who leaves reviews for us. We read all of them. We appreciate all the feedback. As we sometimes say, reviews are the best way for other people to find our podcast. And more importantly, they make us laugh and smile. So thank you so much. Yeah, I'm never going to forget the uh, the one that calls the Soy Boy podcast and gave us one review. That's probably, I mean, it's the one it's a one-star review, but still, it's probably my, my favorite review. So it's a... Uh, True, a badge of honor. Absolutely. It truly is. So keep up the reviews. We appreciate them. And, you know, a couple podcasts down the way, well, we might read some more reviews. And for our patrons, our next Patreon-only bonus episode, Already Dead, our analysis of Man of Steel, the Zack Snyder 2013 movie Man of Steel, that is, will be out for all poor fellow and above patrons starting on Thursday, March 26th. But enough about reviews and Patreon. When we last checked in with Theon Greyjoy, he had done some rape, sent Reek out to round up the boys, and murdered some children. But hey, at least the kids weren't Bran and Rickon? No. Let's find out if actions continue to have consequences in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Theon 6. Maester Lewin came to him when the first scouts were seen outside the walls. My lord prince, he said, you must yield. Theon stared at the platter of oak cakes, honey and blood sausage they brought him to break his fast. Another sleepless night had left his nerves raw, and the very scent of food sickened him. There, there has been no reply from my uncle? None, the maester said, nor from your father on pike. Send more birds. It will not serve. By the time the birds reach, send them! Well, <laughs> this is starting in a completely unexpected, with a completely unexpected outcome with Theon trapped in Winterfell, cut off from his family, and facing almost certain death. Boy, how did it come to this, Theon? Theon knocks his food aside and gets out of bed naked and angry. He wonders if Lewin wants him dead. No, Lewin serves, but not just Theon. He serves the realm and Winterfell. Now, Lewin doesn't exactly like Theon, but he doesn't hate him either. Lewin is bound by oath to serve the castle and the realm, to counsel whoever holds Winterfell, and now he's counseling Theon to fucking yield, bro. Instead, Theon gets a pile of clothes off the ground and, God damn it, Theon, put your fucking dirty clothes in a laundry basket, for Christ's sakes. He shakes out the dirty clothes and then thinks he needs clean clothes. Wax! Luan, go Luan goes on to say that Theon is not going to make it. The Northmen are going to take the castle by assaulting in a hundred places, and Balon, his father, is not going to send help. If he's doing anything, and Balon is definitely not doing anything, he's trying to hold the neck. Lewin counsels Theon to ask for mercy from the Northmen, and the maester knows a way. But before Lewin can tell him the way, Theon blusters that he's a big, strong, ironborn guy. Send the birds like Theon commanded. And he wants his armor clean and his garrison information out in the yard. 
Lewin reluctantly agrees, and then we're down to the yard to hear Theon's battle speech. The Northmen will be on us before nightfall, he told them. Sir Roderick Cassell and all the lords who have come to his call. I will not run from them. I took this castle, and I mean to hold it, to live or die as Prince of Winterfell. But I will not command any man to die with me. If you leave now, before Sir Roderick's main force is upon us, there's still a chance you may win free. Theon unsheathed his longsword and drew a line in the dirt. Those who would stay and fight, step forward. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross music thumping in his head at how epic that shit he just said was. He waits. But no one says anything. They stand around, looking at each other. Theon is very understandably upset that no one wants to be part of his suicide pact and thinks that he's been, wait for it, forsaken, ding, by his family. He'll have to do this alone. But then Wex comes forward, and then Blacklorn and a bunch of consonant and vowel-named Ironborn shitheads step forward, too. Seriously, their names are like Crom and fucking Warlick. I cannot get over this fact from the Theon chapters, like, of how bad these names are. Not bad, they're also kind of hilarious, but just... Ugh. Theon has a, now a grand total of 17 bros on his side, but the 10 that Asha sent are a new. Theon tells them to get lost and go back to Asha. So they all leave, and Theon orders his 17 guys to man the walls. If they survive, he's going to remember them. I'm sure they're all extremely moved. Black Lauren stays behind and tells Theon that the castle is going to fuck them up as soon as the attack is launched. Theon knows this, but what should he do? Well, according to Lauren, kick them all out. But Theon doesn't want to do this. Is the noose ready? It is. You mean to use it? Do you know a better way? Aye. I'll take my axe and stand on that drawbridge and let them come try me. One at a time, two, three, it makes no matter. None will pass the moat while I still draw breath. He means to die, thought Theon. It's not victory he wants. It's an end worthy of a song. We'll use the noose. As you say, Lorne replied, contempt in his eyes. Surely Lorne is most concerned about the ethics of using a noose and not some rape, rob, murder, ironborn reasons, right? No. Wex gets Theon ready for battle by getting his armor on, and then Theon goes to take a lookout from the watchtower. He sees that the Northmen have come and are encircling the castle with probably 2,000 men. And they were in the process of constructing a lot of siege engines which would bring, which, and would build additional siege engines from the woods from the Wolf's Wood. And which houses had come to attack Theon? The Serwin battleaxe flat bravely wherever he looked, and there were Tallheart trees as well, and mermen from White Harbor. Less common were the sigils of Flint and Karstark. Here and there he even saw the bull moose of the Hornwoods, but no glovers. Asha saw to them. No Boltons from the Dread Fort. No Umbers come down from the shadow of the wall. Not that they were needed. Soon enough, the boy Clay Sermon appeared before the gates, carrying a peace banner on a tall staff to announce that Sir Roger Cassell wished to parley with Theon Turncloak. Turncloak? The name was bitter as bile. Theon had gone to Pike to lead his father's longships against Lannisport, he remembered. I shall be out shortly, he shouted down. Alone! Weird that Theon had gone to Pike to do something, but had ended up doing something entirely else. And now everyone was so fucking mad about that, it didn't make any sense whatsoever. Anyways, Black Lauren didn't like the order, thinking that Sir Roderick wouldn't keep his word with someone he thought was an outlaw. And Theon finds this outrageous. He's the Prince of Winterfell and heir to Pike. He orders Lauren to get the girl. Lauren gives him another quote-unquote murderous stare. And Theon realizes that Lauren hates him too. Everyone hates Theon. It's a venerable hashtag mood. He was about to die friendless and alone, so he had to go on living, I guess. Theon heads out to the gatehouse with his ugly-ass crown on, and Theon knows that the people at Winterfell just hate the shit out of him as they watch him go by. When the drawbridge was lowered, a chill wind sighed across the moat. The touch of it made him shiver. It is, it is the cold, nothing more, Theon told himself. A shiver, not a tremble. Even brave men shiver. 
Into the teeth of that wind he rode, under the portcullis, over the drawbridge. The outer gate swung open to let him pass. As he emerged beneath the walls, he could sense the boys watching from the empty. He could, he could sense the boys watching from the empty sockets where their eyes had been. Beyond the portcullis and in the market square was Sir Roderick, a horse with a stark banner carried by Clay Sirwin. From the houses were archers, spearmen to the right and mannerly knights to the left. And Theon realizes that every everyone here not only hates him, they all want him dead. Sir Roderick, Theon reigned to hold. It grieves me that we must meet his foes. My own grief is that I must wait a while to hang you. The old knight spat into the muddy ground. Theon, turn cloak. I am a great joy of pike, Theon reminded him. The, 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 the cloak my father swallowed me and bore a kraken, not a direwolf. For ten years you have been a ward of Stark. Hostage and prisoner, I call it. Roderick reminds him that if Theon was a prisoner, Ned would have thrown him into a dungeon. But instead, Ned raised Theon as a son like the sons of Ned that Theon had very definitely murdered. Roderick wishes he could kill Theon now, but Theon is here to parlay. What does Roderick want? Two things, the old man said. Winterfell and your life. Command your men to open the gates and lay down their arms. Those who murder no children shall be free to walk away, but you shall be held for King Rob's justice. May the gods take pity on you when he returns. Rob will never look on Winterfell again, Theon promised. He will break himself on Mo as every southern army has done for 10,000 years. We hold the north now, sir. Ah, but the Iron Board really actually only hold three castles, and Roderick is taking Winterfell right fucking now. Theon then decides to offer his own terms. Here are my terms. You have until Evenfall to disperse. Those who swear fealty to Balin Greyjoy as their king and to myself as Prince of Winterfell will be confirmed in their rights and properties and suffer no harm. Those who defy us will be destroyed. Young Sermon was incredulous. Are you mad, Greyjoy? Sir Roger shook his head. Only vain lad. Theon has always had too lofty an opinion of himself, I fear. The old man jabbed a finger at him. Do not imagine that I need wait for Rob to fight his way up the neck to deal with the likes of you. I have near 2,000 men with me, and if the tales be true, you have no more than 50. Theon, though, realizes that he only has 17, but he smiles and says he has something else. He signals with his hand to Black Lorne. The walls of Winterfell were behind him, but Sir Roderick faced them squarely and he could not fail to see. Theon watched his face. When his chin quivered under those stiff white whiskers, he knew just what the old man was seeing. He is not surprised, Theon thought with sadness, but the fear is there. This is, this is Craven, Sir Roderick said, to, to use a child, so this is despicable. Oh, I know, said Theon. It's a dish I tasted myself. Where have you forgotten? I was ten when I was taken from my father's house to make certain he would raise no more rebellions. It's not the same, Sir Roderick said. Theon's face was impassive. The noose I wore was not made of hemp and rope, that's true enough, but I felt it all the same, and it chafed Sir Roderick. It, it, it chafed me raw. He had never quite realized that until now, but as the words came spilling out, he saw the truth of them. Roderick angrily declares that Theon was never heard. Yep, and the same will hold true for Beth Cassell as long as Sir Roderick never gave him the chance to finish. Viper, the, king, the knight declared, his face red with rage beneath those white whiskers. I gave you the chance to save your men and die with some small shred of honor turned cloak. I should have known that this was too much to ask of a child killer. His hand went to the hilt of his sword. I'd have cut you down here and now and put an end to your lies and deceits. By the gods, I should. Theon, though, ain't scared of Roderick, but the soldiers that Theon had all around him were a different story. If Roderick has Theon killed, though, Beth is going to be hanged. Sir Roderick's knuckles had gone white, but after a moment he took his hand off the sword hilt. Truly, 
I, I have lived too long. I will not disagree with you, sir. Will you accept my terms? Theon said. Roderick has a duty to the Starks, so instead, Roderick offers himself to take Beth's place. Roderick hopes Theon sees that he's worth more than Beth Cassell, but Theon is unmoved. He knows the Manderleys and the Tards don't care about Roderick's life, so he's keeping the girl strung up until Roderick relents on the attack. Gods be good, Theon! How could you do this? You know I must attack. Have sworn. Well, if this host is still in the arms before my gate, when the sun sets, Beth will hang, said Theon. Another hostage will follow her to the grave at first light and another at sunset. Every dawn and every dusk will mean a death until you were gone. I have no lack of hostages. At that, Theon wheels Smiler around and trots back to the castle, noticing the heads, thinking they're watching him. That causes his horse to pick up the pace. And then above him, Beth Cassell weeps and cries, and Theon starts galloping away from all that shit. When he reaches the courtyard, he gives the order to Wex and says that maybe this will work. He orders Beth to be brought down until sunset, and now it's time to go get good and drunk. In Ned Stark's bedchamber, Theon tries to get good and drunk, knowing that the Northmen are going to attack anyways. But the wine doesn't work. Theon knows that if it was his neck in a noose with Lord Balin outside... Yeah, the attack would have already started, but the, men of, but the men of the Greenlands were soft, though not soft enough. Regardless, when they attacked, Theon knew that he and his men would bite it hard, even if they killed many times their number. Theon stared at the flames over the rim of his wine goblet, brooding on the injustice of it all. I, I, I rode beside Rob Stark in the Whispering Wood, he muttered. He had been frightened that night, but not like this. It was one thing to go into battle surrounded by friends, and another to perish alone and despised. Mercy, he thought miserably. Discouraged that he's about to be cancelled, Theon gets his bow and arrows and heads down to the courtyard to do some archery practice. He shoots arrow after arrow until his fingers are bloody and his shoulders are sore. He ruefully remembers saving Bran's life with a bow, but he can't save his own life with his bow. As the sun starts to set, Theon knows that if he hangs Beth Cassell, that the Northmen will attack instantly. But if he doesn't hang her, everyone will know his threats are empty. It's a lose-lose scenario, and Theon's just really upset at whoever it was that put him in this situation. If you had a hundred archers as good as yourself, you might have a chance to hold the castle, a voice said softly. When Theon turned, Maester Lewin was behind him. Go away, Theon told him. I have had enough of your counsel. And life? Have you had enough of that, my lord prince? Theon aims his bow and arrow at Lewin, telling him that he'll kill him if he quote-unquote counsels him any more. But Lewin is unafraid, knowing that Theon won't. Lewin pulls his bow and asks if Lewin would stake his life on that. I am your last hope, Theon. I, I, I have no hope, Theon thought. Yet he lowered the bow half an inch and said, I will not run. I do not speak of running, Theon. Take the black. The, the night's watch? Theon let the bow unbend slowly and pointed the arrow at the ground. Lewin tells Theon that Roderick knows that the Starks are friends to the watch and he'll allow Theon to join the night's watch if he surrenders. A, a brother of the night's watch. It meant no crown, no sons, no wife, but it meant life and life with honor. Ned Stark's own brother had chosen the watch, and Jon Snow as well. And I have black guard plenty. Once I tear the Krakens off, even my horse is black. I could rise high in the watch. Chief of Rangers, likely even Lord Commander. Let Asha keep the bloody islands. They're as dreary as she is. If I served at East Watch, I could command my own ship, and there's fine hunting beyond the wall. As for one, what wildling woman wouldn't want a prince in her bed? A slow smile crept across his face. A black cloak can't be turned. I'd be as good as any man. But then an alarm is sounded. Theon thinks the Northmen are starting the attack, and Luan begs Theon to raise a peace banner. But then Crom yells down from the walls that the Northmen are fighting each other. 
Another group came up and pretended to be friends with Roderick Stark and Roderick Stark with Roderick Cassell, and then they attacked. Is it Asha? Had she come to save him after all? But Krom gave a shake of his head. No, these are Northmen, I tell you, with a bloody man on their banner. The flayed man of the Dreadfort. Reek had belonged to the bastard of Bolton before his capture, Theon recalled. It was hard to believe that a vile creature like him could sway the Boltons to change their allegiance, but nothing else made sense. I'll see for myself, Theon said. Lewin follows Theon as they head up to the battlements. From the high angle, they see the carnage below as men scream and shout, and though the Bolton men are fewer, they're better led, and they decimate Roger Cassell's army with heavy cavalry charges. Theon watches one dude drag himself across the ground to the center of the market square before he dies. The crows came in the blue dust with the evening stars. The Dothraki believe the stars are spirits of the valiant dead, Theon said. Maester Lewin had told them that a long time ago. Dothraki? The, the, the horse lords across the narrow sea. Oh, them. Black Lorne frowned through his beard. Savages believe all manner of foolish things. The night grows black and the sounds of battle begin to dwindle. Only the screams and moans of the dying and wounded remain. And then a column of riders rides towards the gate. And at the front was a knight in dark armor with a pale pink cloak flowing behind him. They demand entry. Black Lorne asks if they're friend or foe. What a friend brings such fine gifts. Red Helm waved a hand and three corpses were dumped in front of the gate. A torch was waved above the body so the defenders upon the walls might see the faces of the dead. The old Castellan, said Black Lorne, with Leobald Talhard and Clay Sermon. The boy lord had taken an arrow in the eye and Sir Roderick had lost his left arm at the elbow. Maester Lewin gave a wordless cry of dismay, turning away from the battlements and fell to his knees sick. The man says that they would have killed Lord Manderley too, but he didn't leave White Harbor. I I'm safe, the young thought. So why did it feel so empty? Th th this was victory, S sweet victory, the deliverance he prayed for. Theon glanced at Maester Lewin. To think how close I came to yielding and taking the black. Open the gates for our friends. Perhaps tonight Theon would sleep without fear of what his dreams might bring. Bolton men crossed the moat and through the outer and inner walls. Theon heads down to the courtyard with Black Lorne and Maester Lewin to greet his friends. He asks how many, Bol how many of the Boltons lost. Twenty or thirty, according to the man whose helm is non-ominously shaped like a skinless and bloody face with a mouth open like a silent howl of anguish. <laughs> when Theon comments that they were way outnumbered in the battle, the man says, yes, that's true, but Roderick thought they were friends. They weren't. The man had cut off Roderick's arm when he extended in greeting, and then the man revealed himself to Roderick by removing his helm, which the man now does dramatically to Theon. Reek? Theon said, disquieted. How did a serving man get such fine armor? The man laughed. The wretch is dead. He stepped closer. The girl's fault. If she had not run so far, his horse would not have lamed, and we might have been able to flee. I gave him mine when I saw the riders from the ridge. I was done with her by then, and he liked to take his turn while they were still warm. I had to pull him off her and shove my clothes into her hands, scalfskins, boot, and velvet, doublet, silver-chased sword belt, e even my sable cloak. Ride for the Dreadfort, I told him. Bring all the help you can. Take my horse, he's swifter, and here, wear the ring my father gave me so he don't know you came from me. He learned better than to question me. By the time they put that arrow through his back, I'd smeared myself with the girl's filth and dressed in his rags. They might have hanged me anyway, but it was the only chance I saw. He rubbed the back of his hand across his mouth. And now, my sweet prince, there was a woman promised me if I brought two hundred men. Well, I brought three times as many, and no, green bo and no green boys nor field hands neither, but my father's own garrison. 
Theon had promised Reek things, and he decides not to renege on that promise. He orders Pallet to be brought out for him. Hey, what did you say your name was? Ramsay. There was a smile on his plump lips, but none in those pale, pale eyes. Snow, my wife called me before she ate her fingers. But I say, Bolton. His smile curled. So you'd offer me a kennel girl for my good service? Is that the way of it? Theon does not like the tone of voice that Ramsay is using. He states that this was what was promised, but Ramsay doesn't want Pal anymore. He wants Kyra instead. Are you mad? Theon said angrily. I'll have you. The bastard's backhand caught him square, and his cheekbones shattered with a sickening crunch beneath the lobstered steel. The world vanished in a red roar of pain. Later, Theon is on the ground rolling around. He tries to shout for the gates to be closed, but it was too, too late. Dreadford men kill his ironborn bros. Lauren gets surrounded by four men. Ulf gets a crossbow bolt. Lewin was trying to reach Theon, but a horseman puts a spear between his shoulders. Another Bolton dude throws a burning torch onto a thatched roof. Save me the phrase, the blaster was shouting as the flames roared upward. And burn the rest. Burn it all. Burn it. The last thing Theon saw was Smiler, kicking free of the burning stables with his mane ablaze, screaming, rearing. And that is A Clash of Kings Theon 6. Um, what a fucking nightmare of a chapter. And just what a chapter overall, dude. What did you think? Well, I think another great voice from you, sir. The great Ramsey uh, voice, uh, part Joker and part Pennywise the Clown. It's absolutely perfect. And uh, it might feel like A Clash of Kings is out of gas after the Battle of Blackwater, with these last few chapters mostly just setting up a storm of sorts. Not in this case, though. Of all the POVs in A Clash of Kings... Theon is the only one who doesn't appear in A Storm of Swords, so his story has to stand on its own terms. And it does, in large part because it wraps up in spectacular style. Theon 6 is a gut-churning, nerve-shredding chapter. Theon has his back against the wall. George does an expert job making us sympathize with Theon and also flinch away from him with repulsion. And just when you think Theon has been saved, it turns out he's been condemned. This is our last Theon chapter for a long while. Thankfully, it's his best one in the book. Yeah, and like the Blackwater, George uses a series of reversals to intense dramatic effect here in Theon 6. Theon is doomed. Theon is saved. Theon is very, very doomed. It's an intense fucking chapter. And having gone through and reread all of Theon's class chapters prior to this episode, I've noticed something like a semi-pattern in how George did all of Theon's chapters. Theon 1, 3, and 4 end with plot cliffhangers. Where is Balin Greyjoy planning to invade? What's the prize that Theon is after? What are Theon and Reek planning for Bran of Rickon? Meanwhile, Theon 2 and 5 end with plot revelations springing forward from plot twists. Balin revealing his plans to attack the North, and Theon's revelation that he killed the Miller's boys instead of Bran of Rickon. <clears throat> and here in Theon's final chapter, George uses those reversals to do both a major plot revelation, that is, Reek is Ramsay and Winterfell is burned, as well as setting up the 13-year, yes, 13 years between A Clash of Kings and A Dance with Dragons, cliffhanger about what happens to Theon Greyjoy. This chapter is visceral, it's horrifying, it's crushing. To me, and I'll talk about this more later on in the episode, we are in the emotional headspace of A Storm of Swords. I agree, it has the same kind of uh, tormented feeling as Storm, that's the tone of this chapter. Theon spent his last chapter drowning in his terrible decisions. Theon 6 is all about the consequences, which come in some unexpected forms. George captures the queasy dread of someone who's always been able to charm their way out of trouble, 
realizing that it won't work this time. Can't stop what's coming, as they say in No Country for Old Men, and like your average Cormac McCarthy slash Coen Brothers character, Theon is victim of both fate and his own actions. He has tried so hard to be in charge of his own life, but all his efforts have been futile, and now they are backfiring. The opening line of the chapter tells us that scouts have been seen outside the walls, heralds of Theon's doom. We learned in Theon 5 that Sir Roderick defeated Dagmar Clefjaw and will be marching back to Winterfell with his fellow Stark loyalists. Now that army has arrived. Maester Lewin tells Theon that the game is over. He has no choice but to surrender. Theon, however, is in no mood for sensible advice. His nightmares about his crimes have robbed him of sleep, and even the sight of food sickens him. George includes a blood sausage among Theon's untouched breakfast for a reason, just to remind him of everything he's done. Theon is exhausted, paranoid, terrified, bitter, resentful, self-loathing. He's on the verge of snapping, and he can only take refuge in his feigned authority. He's Cersei at the Blackwater. He's the Mad King near the end. He orders Lewin to send more birds to his father, his sister, his uncle Victorian, demanding they come save him. It's a waste of time. The birds wouldn't reach them quick enough, even if they did want to help him, which they clearly don't, or they would have already. That's the painful truth Theon can't face. He did all this to prove himself a proper ironborn badass, but his ironborn family has still rejected him, and now they're abandoning him to his fate. Yeah, and you know, you you brought up about like Theon, what, what he's eating and how he's not sleeping, and something else that it reminded me of was from Theon Five, how Theon is just like tormented by nightmares, like seemingly every single night, every single time he closes his eyes, like he's he's not sleeping. He's obviously in a heightened sense of anxiety and stress, and of course, all of that is stemming from his own behavior. So we're not exactly sympathetic to Theon, but we do kind of pity him a little bit here. On the strategic side of things, Theon and the rest of the Ironborn invaded the North at the best possible time with the North divided and already fighting a civil war over the Hornwood lands. Given this div- division between the North, the, the Ironborn easily took Deepwood Mott and Moat Kaelin and successfully raided the Stony Shore. Then Theon was able to take Winterfell because the castle was under ban with Dagmar's assault on Torrent Square distracting the Northmen. And then, what then? What did the Greyjoys do after that? Let's recall, noted military genius Balin Greyjoy's plan from Theon's second chapter. Those who remain behind are the Cravens, old men, and green boys. They will yield or fall one by one. Winterfell may defy us for a year, but what of it? The rest shall be ours, forest and field and hall. And we shall make the folk our thralls and salt wives. So what's what, what's the next move after taking Moat Kaelin and Deepwood Mod and the Stony Shore? What's, what, what are the Greyjoys doing to secure their advantage in the north? Uh, there, there is no next move. The, the Greyjoys have simply taken three castles and are fucking resting on their laurels from it. The rest of the north isn't yielding and the Ironborn aren't pressing forward to, to attack additional castles. I mean, for instance, Castle Sermon is a mere half day's ride from Winterfell. And at no point does Theon think, hmm, maybe I should talk with Asha about taking that castle. That would be a good you know, Castle Lisa distracts someone else from attacking Winterfell. Meanwhile, there's been no movement by Victarion from Moat Kaelin to secure places like Barrowton, which is relatively nearby. And Asha, too, as much as I love my girl, has simply stayed in place at Deepwood Mott and hasn't threatened Barrow Island, as you suggested as one sort of strategic advice for Asha to have taken up, which she didn't. The timing of the initial invasion was incredibly fortunate for the Greyjoys, but the rest... It's magical bullshit thinking on Balin's part and dumb shit execution on his lieutenant's part, namely his family. 
And now with Ramsey Snow dead and the assault on Torrance Square repelled, the Northmen have rallied to retake Winterfell. This is the opposite of the Lannisters and the Tyrells after the Blackwater. Remember them from last week? They've exploited their amazing timing, squeezing every possible advantage from their victory on the Blackwater. It's also the opposite of what the Golden Company does in similar circumstance with few men when it lands in the Stormlands in a dance of dragons. They're taking lightly defended castles left and right and building momentum for Aegon before marching on Storm's End. The momentum of the initial invasion uh, by Balin Greyjoy that ended at Winterfell, and now Theon is trapped here, Victarion is trapped at Boat Kaelin, Asha is trapped at Deepwood Mott, and, but, and everyone's out for their blood, but everyone's especially out for Theon's blood because of what he did. At some level, Theon has internalized that, and he has accepted death as he thinks to himself, I'll not go to my grave in dirty clothes. But on another, more conscious level, Theon is too cowardly and arrogant to face the consequences for his actions, so he lashes out at Lewin. He demands to know if Lewin wants him dead. I feel like Theon wants someone to tell him, to his face, what a monster he's become. Lewin, however, neither defies Theon nor cowers before him. He is calm, unafraid, which, of course, only makes Theon angrier. Theon has been trying and failing to express that same self-assurance. Why is Lewin so chill, given what Theon has done? As we'll learn in Brand 7, the maester is already pretty sure those dead kids aren't the Starks. Now, Theon still murdered those kids, and also several people in the castle, so any affection Lewin once felt for Theon is gone. But Lewin can't hate Theon either, because like Dagmer, he understands why Theon is doing this. As Lewin says in the show, it's all a performance, you're not the person you're pretending to be. Dagmer remembers Theon from the first half of his life. Lewin was there for the second half. They both know him well enough to see through it. Lewin says that he taught Theon everything he could. Writing, math, history. He wanted to teach him more. He doesn't say what, but it's implied that Lewin wanted to give Theon a moral foundation, a sense of belonging. Lewin knows that Theon pretended to kill the Starks because he's desperate to belong somewhere. That isolation wasn't his choice. I think George is trying to guide the reader's perspective here, condemning Theon for his crimes while recognizing that he didn't just wake up one day ready to kill kids. This was a long, slow process, and it says as much about the world around Theon as it says about him. As such, Lewin still feels a duty to him, and also a duty to his maester's vows, which compel him to give good counsel to whoever's holding Winterfell. Lewin is the maester equivalent of a knight who remembered his vows. Most maesters, from what we see, function like ordinary politicians. Lewin, like Amon, is the rare exception that genuinely tries to serve the realm, however they choose to define that nebulous concept. Why is surrendering good counsel? Because Theon is ludicrously outnumbered, even before half his men abandon him. That's why he was sending birds to his family asking for help, but Lewin reminds him that his father Balon is hyper-focused on Moat Caelan. He is keeping Victarion and the vast majority of Ironborn troops stationed at the Neck to prevent Rob from returning to the north. While that is the crucial choke point, Theon is right that this plan does not make provision for the thousands of Northmen left in the north. They are in position to attack Moat Caelan, where it's vulnerable. Theon, as he says, could serve a valuable function keeping those troops tied down. 
The problem with that, as Lewin patiently explains, is that you can't keep them tied down. There's not going to be a lengthy siege. The Northmen will just come over the walls in a hundred places at once. Both Balon and Theon's plans have gigantic blind spots because they are motivated first and foremost by pride. Father and son aren't that different. Theon surrendering is the best move he can make, not only for himself, but for the small folk of the castle so they don't get caught up in a battle. Lewin is looking out for their interests. As he told Bran the night Theon took the castle, you're the prince, you gotta look out for these people. And now they're Lewin's responsibility. Unfortunately, Theon has darker plans for the people of Winterfell. He does not think about his responsibility in the same way. <laughs> I mean, Theon and responsibility is kind of a... Do those right, concepts go together? I mean, yeah, they don't really intersect necessarily. Um, but, but you know, that, that's, that's a great point. It's a great comparison to, to what Lewin had advised Bran. It's the same advice that, that Lewin had told Bran, which is just save your people. Like your primary responsibility is to the people in Winterfell. Protect them as their lord. Lewin says the same thing to Theon here, but Theon does not view his primary responsibility to the people of Winterfell. He primarily views his responsibility to himself first and to himself second as well. There's also a lot of political and military sense in Roger Cassell aiming for Winterfell before confronting Victarion or Asha. From a tactical perspective, Roderick estimates that Theon is 50 men, and Roderick has him badly outnumbered with nearly 2,000 soldiers. So it'll be a comparatively easy victory than going for Victarion and Asha, who probably have maybe a few thousand under their respective commands. But taking Winterfell and avenging the Starks is a political momentum shift for Roderick Cassell. Much like Stannis and Roose determined to dance with dragons, Winterfell is the heart of the North, and whoever controls it holds political legitimacy over the North. If Roderick takes Winterfell a foregone conclusion, right? Then he can rally additional Northmen to his cause and aim next probably for Victarion down at Moat Kaelin, the gate between the North and the South. As will be discussed at significant length in A Storm of Swords, Moat Kaelin has never been taken from the south southern causeway, but the northern approach is vulnerable to assault. Roderick will just need a few more men, a political victory at Winterfell, and then Victarion is dead meat, right? <laughs> Moving beyond the politics and military strategy of it all, I, I, I do think the dynamic of Roderick Cassell versus Theon from this chapter is some understated awesome writing by George here. Why? Because Roderick is a sympathetic character. The northern cause is a sympathetic one, whereas the Ironborn are just unsympathetic assholes and their causes additional unsympathetic assholery. So we're rooting for the Northmen to come in and scour their lands clean of the Ironborn. But on another level, Theon's reckoning is not rooted within the context of geopolitics, but rather personal abandonment by his family. I don't think we're meant to sympathize with Theon's actions in A Clash of Kings. George goes to great lengths to show his fucked up actions in nearly every chapter. And I don't think we're meant to exactly sympathize with Theon's mindset either with his misogyny, shallow, rapey thought process. Instead, I think George finds the emotional core which garners Theon's sympathy from his reckoning that he's been abandoned. And it's not simply that he's been abandoned for geopolitical reasons, but because he's Theon, the son that Balin doesn't really want. The boy Ned Stark quote-unquote raised his son, as Roderick Cassell will later claim, but Theon subconsciously knows the truth. Ned was cold and distant to him because if Balon did more Balon shittery, which was bound to happen, Theon's head would be on the chopping block. That perspective refracts outwards, and he has plans for both the residents of Winterfell and for his own life, provided he can find some good enough bros to stand the ground at Winterfell with him, right? Yeah, about that. <laughs> Having rejected surrender, Theon has to now make the case for fighting on to his men, which he doesn't even really bother to do. Instead, he all but acknowledges that they're screwed, and that they can either run or die. He draws a line in the dirt and asks them to choose. 
On one hand, I appreciate Theon being blunt and direct, allowing them to make their own call. On the other, what a ludicrous performance this is. Theon does not acknowledge that he led them into this hopeless situation with no plan to extricate them other than demanding his family do it. He never had anything to offer, no reason to be seen as prince, other than his endless assertions that he already was one. So no one crosses the line. Even in his thoughts, Theon can't bear to face up to responsibility. He blames everyone else for leaving him, his father, his sister, even Reek. Theon is so detached from reality that it would be easy to detach from him, in turn, except that George writes his POV so intimately. We feel every skin-crawling second, quote, beneath the great gray walls and hard white sky. Anyone who's ever experienced public humiliation, which I I think is most people, (laughs) knows how time seems to slow, your brain soaking in every miserable detail. Theon feels like he's drowning. Isn't that appropriate, given that the source of the cultural divide here is that he's not drowned enough, not a proper ironborn man? He's drowning in his own alienation from the old way. Wex saves him, just like Podrick saved Tyrion. There are many parallels between this chapter and the Battle of Blackwater. I think that's deliberate. It's the climax of the South in Clash of Kings and then the climax of the North, and they're they're, uh, very similar. Theon is the usurper, like Joffrey, and he gives a desperate last stand speech like Tyrion. Stark loyalists want to retake Winterfell from him, like Baratheon forces wanted to retake King's Landing from the Lannisters. And in the end, well, we'll get to that later. Anyway, Wex is the only one with personal loyalty to Theon. The mute bastard, bottom of the social hierarchy, steps forward with courage. That shames some of the rest, as Tyrion shamed Sandor's men into riding out with him. I'm half a man, what does that say about you? Theon winds up with 17 diehards. The rest leave. Black Lauren is among those who remain. He takes Theon's suicidal logic to its natural conclusion. Let me just stand out there on the drawbridge and take them all on. Instead, Theon tells him to use the noose. Before we learn what that means, we see that it makes Black Lauren hold Theon in contempt. He is despised by both sides. Theon thinks that the very stones of the castle have rejected him. If he dies, he dies alone. What choice does that give him but to live? Theon wants to find meaning and community before he dies. He senses that's what makes it okay to die if you're part of something bigger, but he's cut off every avenue of doing so. He is totally alienated. I mean, he's basically, is it Sideshow Bob? Because I don't watch The Simpsons, the guy who's stepping on the rakes. That's basically like Theon here at at every single moment. (laughs) And, and, you know, I I think it's also a great parallel on on the Theon, Tyrion, Joffrey, and the Blackwater side. And if we return, oh, so briefly back to the 1993 pitch letter, I mean... I haven't got represented in a while, so I have to do it here. Tyrion was the one who was going to burn Winterfell before George swapped Tyrion for uh, for Theon doing the deed. Unlike Tyrion, though, giving his big battle speech and getting shouted up as half-man, half-man, Theon is met with selling stairs until Wex crosses the line and shames 17 others to cross the line. And I think it's interesting that Wex is the one that crosses the line, too, because Theon hasn't exactly treated Wex all that well. He kicked him, insults him, slaps him across the face when he's laughing at him for for Asha back in Theon too, and yet Wex still has some sort of per, some sort of personal loyalty to Theon, and you know it's interesting that he's the one that crosses the line. I think that there's something to take away from that distinction of battle speeches and what their subordinates do, though. 
for all of Tyrion's faults that we've covered extensively for In A Clash of Kings, of not weaponizing his underdog status, he still engendered enough respect to have his men chant his moniker and then ride with him and on one last charge out of the gates. Yet barely a dozen dudes end up crossing line here to die for Theon. One thing that comes to mind about Tyrion is that he's offering his men something to fight for, their homes and their city. Plus, Tyrion can plausibly argue that there's a small chance of victory at the Blackwater if they sweep Stannis' men off the north bank of the Blackwater. But at the same time, Bronn and Jaslyn both told Tyrion that the gold cloaks and sellswords that he had hired would kill for him, but they wouldn't die for him. So if there's one very small positive thing to be said for Theon here, his men are willing to die for him here at Winterfell. But what exactly are they dying for here? They know the castle, a castle they're not emotionally invested in like Theon, is going to fall to the Northmen, but 17 guys are willing to die for it. What I think is actually occurring is that these ironborn morons get shamed by Wex and their honor, such as it is, requires them all to die. I don't think that's actually a good thing. Die for your city, family, and home? Okay. Die for an ideal? All right. Die because your honor is on the line and in such a way that your death will not even be remembered in a song and story like Black Lorne once? Probably not what I necessarily would go for. The thing is that many of these Ironborn are in complete earnestness about the old way, about paying the iron price, and what is dead may never die. And that stands in contrast to what occurs in season two of Game of Thrones. If you all remember that scene from, from the Thrones show, it's quite enjoyable, but it's an entirely different dynamic. Theon poses it being of the old way, giving some stirring speech, but his Ironborn fellows are a bit more cynical about this old way Ironborn bullshit. When Theon yells at his Ironborn bros, they play along at joining Theon as heroic last stand, and then the whole thing is played for laughs as Dagmar Clefjall whacks Theon with his spear butt and leverages Theon for safe passage from Winterfell. In this, the Ironborn don't actually distinguish themselves from the normal Craven way of Westeros, and the old way is just for show. Still, in the earnest version here in A Clash of Kings, is the old way any better if it's believed earnestly? Dagmar Clefjaw, who is a merged Dagmar slash Blackloran slash Gelmar character of the show, still helps Theon murder the Shepherd's Boys in season two of the Thrones show. Posers, true believers, or cynics, the end state, if the end state is the death of the innocents, it's just not a good ideology all around, is it? I think you hit on something important there, because when the ideology in, in question demands you do things like this, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you do it cynically or whether you do it earnestly. Like, you know, either either you're you're a coward or you're a true believer doing something terrible. There's really just uh, no good options. And the only way is to, I think, get outside the old way entirely, which Theon has struggled to do, of course. And that's going to be something more kind of Asha works directly on as we, we go forward in the series. George then shifts our focus to the other side of the struggle. The 2,000 or so Northmen come to retake Winterfell in the name of the Starks. This army is evidence of the political strength of the Stark name. There is seemingly no member of the family left in the north. The Ironborn invasion has destabilized the region. Yet, Sir Roderick was able to gather all these men together. At the same time, you can see the impact the war has had. No Glovers are here because Asha took Deepwood Mott. No Umbers because the Great John took every man of fighting age with him. Barely any Hornwoods because of the inheritance crisis we saw unfold in Bran's chapters. All of this matters, because while Sir Roderick still has more than enough men to defeat Theon, he winds up not having enough to defeat Ramsay. For the first time reader, though, this army looks formidable, especially because they are animated by murderous hatred toward Theon. You can feel them all hunching forward, just ready to get him. <laughs> As Theon rides out to meet them, the ugly crown on his head... 
doesn't prevent him from shivering as the winds of winter cut right through him. He feels the eyes from the heads on the walls staring down at him. Sir Roderick has archers watching his every move, a line of knights from White Harbor ready to ride him down. Theon knows many of these men, he's partied with many of them, but he knows that will not save him. The fact that they know him so well makes them hate him more, not less. There is a sting of betrayal that isn't there with, say, Asha or Dagmar, who are strangers to these people. Theon was friends with these guys, and now they have become foes. Theon addresses that right away, saying it grieves him to meet Sir Roderick as an enemy. On one hand, this is an empty courtesy, and a galling one. If Theon didn't want Stark loyalists to be enemies, maybe he shouldn't have invaded the North. On the other, Theon does mean it at some level. His goal was to gain acceptance from his Ironborn family. He had tunnel vision. He didn't think through how the Northmen would see him until it was already too late. He remembers miserably how he was sent to Pike as Rob's emissary to bring Ironborn longships to bear against the Lannisters. It seems like a million years ago. It seems like he was a different man. How has everything got so turned around? As Tyrion says in A Storm of Swords, it goes back to our parents. We dance as puppets on their strings, and our children will one day take our place. When Roderick calls Theon a turncloak, Theon reminds Roderick that he was born a Greyjoy of Pike. Surely that is where his loyalty lies, his patrimony. Roderick insists that Theon's status as a ward of Stark for ten years ought to have fostered loyalty to Winterfell. Theon counters that he was Ned's prisoner, but prisoners, Roderick points out, are usually thrown into dungeons. Theon got to ride around in nice clothes, getting laid all the time. He ate and fought and laughed alongside the Stark boys, and then he butchered them. I think they both have half a point. Roderick is right that Theon cannot exactly claim ill treatment that would motivate him to seek personal revenge on House Stark. Murdering his foster brothers, you know, defenseless children at that, that's a clear escalation of violence. Like, even Theon's brothers, they, they were grown men. They died in battle. This is clearly, things have gotten worse, and Theon made them worse. Theon is right, though, that he's a Greyjoy at the end of the day. He never took the Stark name. He was never going to. What does he owe them? I'm always skeptical when people demand credit for not mistreating others. Like, sure, Ned didn't chain Theon to a wall like Stannis does. What do you want, a medal? I think it's revealing that Sir Roderick confesses to undying shame about his own role in the process. He trained Theon in the arts of war. Lewin said much the same thing. I tried to teach you, but it wasn't enough. And he told the same thing to Bran regarding Ned's parentage of Theon. Oh, Ned tried to gentle Theon. It was too little too late. Even as these adults reel from the horror of what Theon has done, they realize their own culpability. They raised him. They produced him. The whole point was to reduce violence between their peoples, and it only got worse. Where exactly did the system break down? How did we get here? George offers an answer in this chapter. We got here by treating children as currency, coin to be spent to gain advantage in the Game of Thrones. Theon says that he has something better than men. He raises his fist, a signal to Black Lauren on the castle walls. As when Lauren mentioned the noose earlier, we still don't know what Theon is actually doing yet. 
All we have to go on is other people's reactions to it. Roderick's stern face breaks. His chin starts to quiver. He's afraid, Theon thinks, sadly, but not surprised. After Theon killed children, who would be surprised by anything he does? Is there any crime he won't commit? It is despicable to use children this way, Roderick says, as objects in war, taking advantage of their helplessness and our love for them. Theon admits that yes, it is despicable, and he would know. He was used this way. Theon had to pay the price for his father's rebellion. Whatever lessons Balin was supposed to learn from that did not take hold. He just waited for Ned and Robert to die, and then he resumed his war with no thought for Theon. The Game of Thrones made no room for Theon Greyjoy. Even if he had conducted himself better, he would still have no place to call home. He was ripped from his home as a child and exiled as a stranger in a strange land, all too aware of the death sentence hanging over his head. Was he treated well at Winterfell? Sure, they never put a noose around his neck. But it was there, he says. He felt it all the same. To me, this is the most poignant moment in Theon's Clash of Kings chapters, in which George reveals the callous politics that have shaped his psychology. It's all the more powerful because Theon didn't even consciously realize this pain until he expressed it out loud. He has gotten used to the noose. So now that he has come into his own power, it's the only tool he can think to use. It's all he was taught. His fathers never showed him anything else. Theon was forged in the cycle of violence. He perpetuated it on the Miller's boys, and now he perpetuates it on the Cassell family. Sir Roderick feels trapped, no good options, just like Theon. No one receives mercy. I love how Roderick's disgust breaks down in desperation. He addresses Theon by his name, not Turncloak, but just Theon, and asks Theon, how could you do this? How can you make me condemn my own child to death? For it's young Beth Cassell with the noose around her neck, sobbing, stuck between the two dead heads on the walls. And those heads are the answer to Roderick's question. Theon has already gone over the edge and feels that it's too late to pull back. He will be the monster they believe him to be, reflecting what they did to him. I think that's a perfect way to write a believable moral descent. Absolutely <clears throat> magnificently said. And Theon's moral descent is something that's just utterly well written by George in this chapter. And if we go back to Bran's first chapter in Game of Thrones, Ned told Bran that there is no crime that a deserve will flinch from, that Garrett had to die to prevent further harm from occurring to other people in the North. And you could argue the semantics of a turncloak versus a deserve, but the crime is somewhat similar. And I think we see the full extent that there is no crime that Theon will flinch from to stay alive. The trajectory has gone from turncloaking to killing a former acquaintance to killing defiant Winterfell staff members to rape to murdering two boys to cover up Theon's bungling of holding Bran and Rickon to now stringing up a girl and threatening to hang her if the Northmen attack. The thing of it is that it's not quite the straight trajectory that I was making it out to be. Is Theon truly a turncloak? According to him, no, he's not. Theon was a Greyjoy first and then a ward slash hostage of the Starks. But that layer of Theon covers up another layer. He might—he may not have felt like the son of Ned Stark, but he found community within the army of Robb Stark, as he says later on. Theon may not have felt like Ned Stark's brother, or rather Ned Stark's son, 
But as he told Bran when he took Winterfell, he did feel like Rob Stark's brother. And Rob felt similarly to Theon, and despite Catelyn's warnings and trusting him with the mission to Pike to bring the Greyjoys to the Stark's side. But Theon repaid that trust with betrayal. But is it truly betrayal? I think on one level it is, as it betrays Theon's original purpose in going to Pike. But on another level, it's not quite turncloak betrayal, as Theon is a Greyjoy first and he's trying to fit, into with, fit in with his family again. But here's the crux. We could argue about the naming convention of whether Theon is a turncloak or a Greyjoy or a Stark or whatnot, but that's not what gives this scene emotional heft. It's rather that Theon feels like his identities are being torn up inside. On an emotional level, he believes that he betrayed Rob, and on an emotional level, he believes that he's also a Greyjoy. But also, on another emotional level, he knows the Starks <laughs> never trusted him and viewed him as a prisoner. That's very complex. And on and on the emotional level, Theon also knows that his father never accepted him as a son, and that his dad isn't coming to save him because of that fact that he didn't think of him as a son. That's the framing for what you identified so well that Theon is willing to do any foul deed, and that was shaped by this and by his own experience, coupled with his cowardly, brittle shell of masculinity, which was also forged by the fact that he didn't have a father figure to teach him how to be a man. The former rootlessness led to the fragile hyper-masculinity compensation and both feed toward atrocity here and in previous Theon chapters. And ultimately, they have led him here to where he's trapped inside his emotions and inside the castle of Winterfell. So here we are. Theon has put a crying little girl in a noose and forced her father to watch. And it was all for nothing, as he himself realizes. Beth Cassell is not an important enough hostage to restrain the Northmen. No one inside the castle is. Moreover, whether he hangs her or not at nightfall, the Northmen will immediately attack. Holding Beth won't work. For the same reason, holding Theon didn't restrain Balon, because Balon didn't care about Theon. The logic animating the hostage system has broken down. Theon reflects on how he saved Bran's life with his bow, how he rode into battle at Rob's side. That's how it should work, friendships leading to alliances. As you say, it didn't really work with Ned, but on the level of Theon's generation, he actually was starting to forge those bonds. He'd been frightened at the Whispering Wood, but this is worse. It is one thing to die with friends. It is another to die alone. Again, these are now the stakes of Theon's story. He has already jumped headfirst into hell. Nothing he can do about that. The question now is whether he's ever going to be able to find acceptance again. As I said, George traps the reader in Theon's head. We can feel the sensation of no exit. All you can do is wait for your doom to arrive. The shadow of the broken tower reaches out for Theon like an arm, like a sundial marking the countdown to his final sunset. That shadow is also just some powerful foreshadowing showing what will happen to Theon once the shadow actually touches him, when he's truly confined to a dungeon within the Dreadfort. And I was reading, rereading the first Theon chapter earlier today, and Theon makes mention of the Towers of Pike going into the backstory of how once Pike was one great landmass, and then tens of thousands of years of waves beat against the land, turning that single landmass into three islands with castles and towers at the, at the highest points. The point of from that chapter was that Theon was looking forward to being within the shadow of those towers, how he longed to be quote-unquote home. But Homan Pike proved less than ideal for Theon, and his father all but rejected him in favor of Asha, thinking him more stark and a Greenlander than a Greyjoy man of the old way. So now here, Theon is home again, but the Broken Tower of Winterfell has a shadow reaching for him. So he's not precisely home either. For Theon, the sense you get from this chapter is there is no home for him. 
And the shadows of Winterfell and Pike haunt him and reach out for him until he's in a place where there is no light at all. The shadow that is the dungeon in the Dreadford. Yeah, that's perfectly put. It's so terrible when we get there. But ironically, in this chapter, the color black also represents potential deliverance for Theon. Lewin emerges again to urge Theon to take the black, join the Night's Watch. Theon's reaction is really well written, capturing the complexity of his character. On one hand, his yearning for a fresh start is achingly sincere. A black cloak can't be turned. I'd be as good as any man. The watch represents an escape from the torments of identity in a civil war. Theon is willing to give it all up. No crown, no sons, no wife. Asha can have the Iron Islands. He'll tear the krakens off his clothes. That's quite the image. On the other hand, that image also reveals how shallow and thoughtless Theon remains. He is so eager to avoid a reckoning, he'll just swap out his entire life. He is still so delusional about his status that he promptly imagines he'd wind up captaining a ship, or probably the Lord Commander, and seducing wilding ladies as a prince, even though he's no longer a prince. <laughs> Moreover, we know he's not exactly right about the Night's Watch. Black cloaks can be turned, just look at Mance. And who you were in your old life still counts. I bet Theon would still be kind of a pariah when he got to Castle Black. While I relate to the rush of feeling that Theon experiences, the possibility of flipping off both sides and starting over somewhere else, that's very alluring, but the blind spots that have led him here, they haven't been challenged. And you know George means to challenge those blind spots because as soon as he introduces this possible path for Theon off to the Night's Watch, he snatches it away. As George writes it, the news, the news of a twist in the battle, shatters the daydream, and Theon has to face his new reality. Mm, and we're on to battle talk, battle talk, <laughs> battle <laughs> talk. <Hell> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the long last, as if we haven't just done the Blackwaters a few, few weeks prior to this. And also, like the Blackwater, George has built up the showdown at Winterfell for so long that when it finally breaks, you can just feel the tension gusting out of the outbreak of this battle. And also like the Blackwater, this is a moment where salvation for Theon comes as a major twist in the story, both for the plot and for Theon personally. But it's also a twist that's been well foundationed by George. And I figure we might as well just start there and recount some of the things that lead to this point. So starting in Brand 5, Roger Cassell turns up with the prisoner Reek, who had been captured during a skirmish with Ramsay Snow and his Bolton men near the Hornwood Forest. Reek, who you'll be shocked to find out is actually Ramsay Snow, then is carried back to Winterfell and locked in a dungeon to await Rob's judgment. Then at Brand 6, Theon takes Winterfell and brings Ramsay into his service after he swears an oath to him and Balon Greyjoy. Theon 4 has Ramsay accompany Theon to his, and his hunting party looking for Bran and Rickon and offering a way to get Theon out of the jam of not finding Bran and Rickon, namely killing the Miller's boys and posing them as Bran and Rickon. Theon 5 has Ramsay killing the Ironborn who are witnesses to the murders and then Ramsay dispatching, and then Theon dispatching Ramsay with Stark Silver to find some quote-unquote good boys to aid Theon. And then wham-bam, they show up here in Theon 6 to save Theon Greyjoy. So that's basically the published narrative. Let's turn to some other things we know, some subtext here, and game out what was going on between Theon 5 and Theon 6. So in Arya 9, the chapter which occurs right after Bran 6, has Roose Bolton taking ownership of Harrenhal, establishing a place where he can receive and dispatch ravens. Alongside of this, Roose begins plotting the Red Wedding with Tywin Lannister. This is where the chronology gets a little bit finicky and tricky here, but the phrase find out about Rob and Jane in Arya's 10th chapter in A Clash of Kings and let's assume that the phrase decided to join in with Roos's planning for the Red Wedding immediately after that. 
That would mean that Ramsey arrived back at the Dreadfort after Arya 10 for a reason that will become clear in just a moment. When Ramsey arrived at the Dreadfort, I think what happened was that he found out that Roose had taken Harrenhal, and he sent a bird to Roose Bolton to find out what to do next. Roose sends back a bird, instructing Ramsey to sack Winterfell, but to take the Frey boys alive. Why take the Walders Frey alive? Two reasons, carrot and stick. First, to keep the two sons of Walder Fla- Frey alive as a token of Bolton friendship. Secondly, as a threat to Walder Frey that if he goes sideways on Roose, that he has his sons as Catelyn knows just prior to the Red Wedding. Bolton had made a toast to Lord Walder's grandsons when the wedding feast began, pointedly mentioning that Walder and Walder were in the care of his bastard son. From the way the old man had squinted at him, his mouth sucking at the air, Catelyn knew he had heard the unspoken threat. Alternatively, so if I actually fucked up the chronology of everything on when Theon 6 occurs in relation to the Freys joining with Roose and planning the Red Wedding, it might be that Roose has ordered the Frey boys secured so he can use them as a bargaining chip to bring the Freys into the Red Wedding conspiracy. So why do we think Ramsay and Roose plotted this one, the sack of Winterfell together? Because the Dreadfort garrison is what Ramsay shows up with here. And I really cannot imagine them going along with Ramsay to Winterfell unless they had the express authorization of Roose Bolton here. I mean, just look at how Roose Bolton's underlings are treated by Roose and Arya 10 and how he just intimidates the living shit out of, the, out of his people. So yeah, they're probably operating under Roose Bolton's, Bolton's authority. Anyways, that's actually just preamble to the battle itself. For Ramsay here, the primary mission is Winterfell, and it's icing on the cake that Roger Cassell has arrived first, but not before they've launched the attack. So, into the battle. Ramsay arrives with about 400 Bolton troops under his command, meaning he's badly outnumbered by Roderick's 2,000. The numbers alone should dictate an easy defeat for Ramsay, but he has a force multiplier in hand, a surprise betrayal of the Stark cause. As Ramsay recounts towards the end of the chapter, the Boltons showed up playing as friends of Roderick Cassell. Rams himself approached Roderick on horseback, and when Roderick extended his arm out in greeting, Ramsay unsheathed his sword and chopped his arm off. Obviously, Ramsay did this to be especially cruel towards Roderick Cassell, who had thrown him into a dungeon, who had killed his men and spoiled his fun at the, in the Hornwood Lands. But the second order effect was that the Northern Army under Roderick's command became leaderless at the precise moment that the Boltons fell on them. Beyond that, the Northmen were facing the wrong direction. They were preparing to attack Winterfell, and the Boltons attacked from an angle that they weren't expecting, and they also posed as friends initially. In my estimation, Roderick's inability to recognize the threat from the Boltons is sympathetic, and yet really foolish. Roderick probably welcomed the Boltons, thinking that having more men would help him in taking on Victorian at Moat Kaelin. But to me, that's, to use a football analogy that everyone's going to love so much, it's a receiver turning his head upfield prior to securing the ball. Roderick had gone to war with Ramsay before, killed Bolton men, and killed Ramsay too. And Roderick should have been wary of the Boltons showing up and should have had his hackles up. Instead, he dies, and the Boltons charge into the now leaderless Northmen, killing them quickly with a shock cavalry charge. And Roderick's Northmen, despite their superior numbers, get routed and are unable to form effective shield walls to repel Ramsay and his cavalry. The Boltons use their advantage and surprise to make the Stark loyalists leaderless and then exploit their advantage by repeated assaults against the rest of the Northmen, many of whom are facing away from the direction of the attack. Theon notes that the Dreadford men are better led, which, duh, Roderick is now dead. The end result, though, is that 20 to 30 Bolton men are killed, a roughly 5% killed in action rate, but the Stark loyalists are almost entirely annihilated. Great job laying that out, sir. I think it's, you make it clear with all those factors how Ramsay is over to, able to overcome what is a pretty significant uh, deficit in numbers, but 
the the shock of surprise that that you know that they're facing the wrong direction that he has this cavalry force it all adds up to a, a really clean victory yeah only your 20 or 30 at the cost of, of hundreds and hundreds of the opposition and this ambush comes as a shock to the reader even though we saw theon send reek out to recruit men in his previous chapter as theon said in that chapter and reiterates in this one Counting on the Boltons to switch sides to the Ironborn on Reek's say-so was the longest of long shots. It seemed more likely that Reek had contrived this mission to get out of the castle, like Littlefinger got out of King's Landing before Stannis arrived. But just like Littlefinger, Reek came back with an army after all. And just like Sansa and Tyrion during the Battle of Blackwater, Theon assumes that his sibling has come to save him, because who else would? Theon thinks for a second, oh, it must be Asha who showed up to break the siege. Who else would save my ass? Theon watches the battle unfold from the walls. It reminds me a lot of the Catalan battle chapters we've covered. The fighting is seen at a distance, and the emphasis is more on the visual sweep and the melancholy tone. There are no battle lines, only, quote, a swirling chaos of banners and blades. The inn burns as the setting sun paints the winter town blood red. A wounded man drags himself toward the well, but dies before he can reach it. Theon can't tell which side he was on. As in Tyrion's final chapter, the symbols that separate one side from the other fall away, and you are left with the blunt material facts of death, which claims everyone in the end. What happens after we die? By definition, no one knows. Everyone projects their own shadow on the brick wall of mortality. As night falls, Theon remembers something Lewin told him. The Dothraki believe that the stars are the spirits of the valiant dead. Nature does not know extinction. It only knows transformation. Death is not an ending. It is a door that opens. We are spirits. We are eternal. That's one perspective. The other perspective is represented by the gathering crows circling above the battlefield. Men are meat. We rot, and our pretensions rot with us. We all have death in common, but that alone doesn't break down the borders we erect between ourselves. Lewin passed on part of a different culture to Theon. He learned this about the Dothraki, he thought it was interesting, and he told Theon Theon remembered it. But Black Lauren, when Theon says it, he rejects it. He says, ah, the Dothraki, they're just savages. They believe all number of foolish things. Ironically, this is also how the mainlanders of Westeros talk about the Ironborn. And it's also how the Dothraki talk about everyone in Westeros. Everyone squints suspiciously at those distant figures over there across the water. And you just, you, you, you invent all kinds of barbarianisms in your head and you project them into the other. Theon's story is the product of these cultural tensions, the way in which he is not welcome in the North nor the Iron Islands, seen as suspicious, seen as other by both sides. If only we could recognize that we have more similarities than differences. The same will apply to the wildlings in later books. Alas, for Theon, this little revelation comes too late to save him. As great as this chapter is throughout, the part everyone remembers is the full heavy metal reveal of Ramsay, the Bastard of Bolton. It kept him in my mind all through the long wait for A Dance with Dragons. I remembered him when he came back in dance, I was ready to jump back in. He emerges from the fog of war like a bat out of hell, wearing armor shaped to look like a flayed man screaming in torment. He is the Dreadfort Banner brought to life, the embodiment of punishment and pain. 
Again, there's an interesting parallel and contrast to the Battle of Blackwater. That battle also ended with someone in distinctive armor showing up to sweep away the besieging army. But while Renly's army, Renly's armor was beautiful, Ramsay's armor is horrifying. It's the nightmare instead of the dream. That's a, that's well put. And I think, too, I had a brief flashback to the battle by the god's eye from Arya's fourth chapter in Clash of Kings when Amory Lorch rode up to the Holdfast. A column of riders moved between the burning buildings toward the Holdfast. Firelight glittered off metal helms and spattered their mail and plate with orange and yellow highlights. One carried a banner on a tall lance. Arya thought it was red, but it was hard to tell in the night with the fires roaring all around. Everything seemed red or black or orange. There, Arya was able to understand that these guys were not friends of the Night's Watch and able to see that their end goal was, dest- was destruction for its own sake. And Yorin wasn't about to open the gates to Emery Lorch for inspection to determine if they were rebels or not. That, unfortunately, is not how Theon is going to operate here. Alas, if only he did, because Ramsay, also unlike Renly in his armor, Renly's ghost, Ramsay is not actually here to save the day. George hints at that right away when Ramsay refuses to answer Lauren's question, are you a friend or a foe? Instead, the man that Theon calls a Red Helm shows off his gifts. The bodies of the Stark Loyalist leaders, Clay Serwin, Leobald Tallhart, and Sir Roderick. Lewin is sick with dismay, as we might be about Clay, who is only a boy, and poor old Sir Roderick, trying his best for the Starks. No wonder Theon feels so empty in spite of being delivered. It feels so wretched and wrong, just like his quote-unquote victory on the stony shore. He's made his deal with the devil. You can really feel the doom of all these decisions settling on reread. Theon thinking how close he came to taking the black, hoping that tonight at last he'll sleep easy, if only. Red Helm hasn't come to save Theon from his nightmares. He's come to make them real, punishing him for the murders they committed together. As he says, everyone makes the mistake of thinking he's their friend. Sir Roderick made that mistake, and so did Theon. Sir Roderick held out his hand of friendship to Red Helm, assuming the Dreadfort men had come to join the siege. Red Helm promptly took Roderick's arm off, and then showed the old knight his face. He shows that face to Theon now. This is where George's writing shifts into overdrive. I get why the show didn't adapt the Reek Ramsey twist. It's already confusing on the page. But it's one of my favorite twists in the story because of how many narrative strands it brings together, how much is paid off all at once. As you laid out so well earlier, Reek has been in the background all through the back half of A Clash of Kings, crossing from Bran's POV into Theon's. It might have seemed suspicious that the bastard himself was killed off screen after being built up, but hey, we've had Reek in his place. Maybe this was the character we were supposed to be paying attention to. Now we realize that George never killed off the bastard at all. He's been showing us Ramsay the whole time. Now we know what kind of man he is. He's the kind of man unable to control his sadistic urges, so that he kept hunting, raping, and flaying women even after moving up in the world, even after acquiring something to lose. He's the kind of man who would betray his only companion on a dime, dressing the original Reek in Ramsay's clothes so Roderick would kill him instead, sparing the man he thought was Reek as a witness. Ramsay is the kind of man who would smear himself in shit to survive, improvising his way to Theon's right hand, promising him support in order to escape the castle, and returning to wipe out his enemies in the north, 
who have conveniently gathered all in one place for him. Seen in full, this is a remarkable rise to power, fitting in with everything else going on like a missing puzzle piece. How did Ramsay get away with it? So many factors made it possible. Both Hornwood men dying in battle, the fig leaf of marriage allowing him to gain access to Hornwood lands, the wild card of the Ironborn invasion. Ramsay has been the villain of the whole northern plot of A Clash of Kings, hiding in plain sight. That's so well put, and I think that's... It's 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 like the reveal of like a monster at the end of the story where you think like for so much of the story that the the bad guy has been out in, in the forum. It's like the usual suspects. Not to not to ruin the, my favorite movie of all time, but <laughs> you think that one guy is the bad guy the entire time, and then you realize at the very end of the movie you're like, oh my god, like this is the reveal of the actual villain of the story. And, and I think too when we're talking about another factor that allowed Ramsey to operate the way that he did is that Roderick never had seen Ramsey, never even heard of him before he he showed up in in telling at the Harvest Feast at Winterfell and Brand's second chapter. Lord Bolton has never acknowledged the boy so far as I know, Sir Roderick Cassell said. I confess, I do not know him. Lady Danilla Hornwood had said that Roos had hidden Ramsey from plain sight, probably never bringing him out when the other lords visited. It's ruthlessly clever on Roos's part because he probably utilized that old noble stigma against bastards, the same stigma that kept John at the squire's table during Robert's feast, as Cersei had told Ned that they tried to hide their bastard from, from her and from the royal family uh, during that feast. And now that ruthless cruelty pays its evil dividends here. Few knew what Ramsay looked like outside of the Dreadford, and those that did know him are dead like Danalo or deceived like Roderick and the reader too. And that allows Ramsay to take violent control of his identity on the public stage here. The bastard cut down Roderick, the man who spared him, and then showed the old knight his face. Even as Ramsay describes that, he does the same thing to Theon. So George is compressing three revelations, Roderick's, Theon's, and ours. All of us realize at once that we've been tricked. Roderick and Theon were tricked by Ramsay, and we were tricked by George. We struggle to keep up. This passage is so devastatingly effective because of how quickly it moves. As we process that Reek was Ramsay all along, he demands his prize from Theon, a woman in exchange for his military support. Ramsay makes Theon culpable in his own downfall one last time. Even after learning what kind of man he's dealing with, Theon is still willing to turn poor Paula over to Ramsay to suffer rape and mutilation and murder. Theon describes Paula as a pound of flesh. George is drawing from Shakespeare here to emphasize the dramatic stakes at work. Theon has sold his soul, becoming the monster he thinks he must be to win the game. That's what makes this scene such a perfect nightmare. It's not just Ramsay steamrolling Theon, it's Ramsay making Theon more like him. That process will only continue. Ramsay sheds the skin of Reek only to force Theon to accept that name as his own. The abuser makes his victim complicit. You are stinking, worthless, you deserve what you get. Theon breaks in the face of torment from without and within. Ramsay takes advantage of his guilt and self-loathing. Ramsay did all this to be seen as a true member of his family, a true Bolton. Isn't that why Theon did everything he's done? To be seen as a Greyjoy? To have a place? Ramsay represents the full extension of that logic. He will do anything, to anyone, 
in order to be the man he believes he is supposed to be. Those pale eyes are so chilling as he describes how he starved his wife to death after she called him a bastard. He took her castle, and he kept climbing. He hasn't come for the woman Theon offers, but the woman Theon himself has been having sex with, Kyra. That's Ramsay's power move, his emasculation of Theon. Like Asha, he knows where to hurt Theon, sex. But while Asha was using tough love to get Theon to grow up, Ramsay is just playing with his food. So when Theon defies him, Ramsay smashes his face. The chapter explodes into fire and blood as the irony hits home for the reader. Sir Roderick's army didn't herald Theon's doom after all. It was Ramsay, the man he thought an ally, who has come to punish him. The Bolton men sweep over Winterfell, attacking ironborn soldiers and northern civilians alike. Theon was trapped between his two families, his two selves, and now the bastard is tearing both of them down. Theon declared that he would hold on to Winterfell no matter what. Now he sees the end result of his crusade, Winterfell burning to the ground. As you said, Ramsay almost gives the game away here by ordering his men to spare Big and Little Walder Frey. But the first-time reader isn't going to pick up on that because of the sheer nightmarish power of the imagery. Winterfell is home. The cradle of the story itself, it began here. We fell in love with the castle in book one. It's heartbreaking to watch it reduced. We're like Davos watching his gods burn. Our reassuring mighty pillar is being taken away, and we are alone in an uncertain and violent world. As for Theon himself, his last sight is of his horse Smiler screaming as he burns. Smiler. Theon, of course, is always smiling, even when he shouldn't. That's how he was introduced to us, laughing at an execution, kicking the head around like a ball. He never takes anything seriously. That immaturity has led him here. Ramsay broke his cheekbones and will soon begin breaking his teeth. Theon's smile is on fire. His face is changing. His identity is breaking. His next chapter will be titled Reek. Bravo, man. That's... Wow. You crushed that entirely. That's... Well, thank you, sir. Really, really well put. And, and I think really speaks to the heart of what George is doing with Theon in A Clash of Kings. So yeah, standing ovation. I'm not going to stand up because I'll lose, lose sight of the microphone here. But yes, excellent job. And of all the POV conclusions in A Clash of Kings, I think that only Catelyn's rivals Theon for the best written. But what a journey it's been traveling with Theon. And it's remarkable that he was never intended to be a POV character until George decided that he had to be one. I do think there is a lot to take away from Theon's journey in Clash from a narrative and writerly perspective. Back in 2010, George talked about one avenue in which he writes reportedly saying, another useful, and this is George's advice to writers, another useful exercise is for a writer to write a story from the viewpoint of someone you hate, someone who would violate all your, well, if you were a right winger, write from the viewpoint of a communist, try to make that person human. It's a good ex exercise for building empathy. George really tries to get inside the skin of all his characters, even Theon. Theon has his own reasons for doing appalling things, so he needs to be able to see why he does what he does and understand it. I think that's what made Theon so compelling. Theon was immature, as you put really, really well. And Theon also had, quote unquote, reasons for being an asshole and doing the horrible assholish things that he did throughout this book. 
And George really got into Theon's skin to write him as compellingly as he did. But this is not merely a quote-unquote, let's set Theon up for what's to come in a storm of swords. This is the conclusion of Theon's arc for A Clash of Kings and for the first half of the story of A Song of Ice and Fire. In a way, this chapter holds a similar feeling for me that Catelyn's final chapter, which occurs at the Red Wedding, does in A Storm of Swords. The Red Wedding and the arrival of Ramsay conclude the story of Robb Stark, and this chapter here concludes the story of Theon of House Greyjoy. Ramsay had rode to the walls of Winterfell, playing as Theon's friend, offering grisly tokens of friendship to Theon in the form of three bodies. In A Storm of Swords, Roose will do similarly with Catelyn displaying a strip of, you guessed it, Theon's skin to her in Catelyn's sixth chapter of Storm of Swords, pledging his loyalty to the Starks just before the knives come out. And then the Boltons here and in A Storm of Swords betray their quote-unquote friends. I think as fans, our heart breaks for Catelyn and Rob at the Red Wedding when those knives come out. And I, here in this chapter, I felt my heart breaking when Lewin took a spear between his shoulder blades at the end of the chapter. But it's the sheer visceral horror of death that punctuates my feeling about the Red Wedding. It's Greywind dying at the Red Wedding and Smiler burning here in Theon 6. That horse didn't deserve the fire. Maester Lewin didn't deserve the spear at his back. The Winterfell staff do not deserve death or the death march to the Dreadfort and the horrors that exist there. But with Theon, my heart doesn't exactly break. And I think that's George's writing at its most effective here. Instead, even as Theon reaps every shitty thing he sowed in A Clash of Kings, I start to feel something that I'm going to feel a lot for Theon when we get to A Dance with Dragons. Pity. It's fantastic setup for the world of Theon Greyjoy. And when we pick up with Theon in just a few years' time in A Dance with Dragons, that's right where George is going to start us from, from the emotional framework for Theon. Pity. I couldn't agree more. It's it's a it's a profound emotional state in dance that makes you reach back to Clash and reconfigure how you felt about him and what George did to bring you to that hatred and, and how you feel about it going forward. And of course, by the time we get back to Theon and a Dance with Dragons, a lot will have changed in the story that he's going to have to try to catch up on in bits and pieces. So shifting into foreshadowing and groundwork, one of those major changes. Theon is right when he says that Rob will never look upon Winterfell again, but he doesn't know why. The Red Wedding is coming. It's not because of the Ironborn that Rob's never coming home. Right. And, and, I, and I think this is one of those things like, uh, you, know, you know, Theon had the, the Red Wedding vision or the right. dream, rather, from from Theon's fifth chapter. And here we get Theon inexplicably actually staying the truth of what's going to happen with Robb Stark because when he attempts to come up north. It's one of those moments of, of heartbreak in, in the Storm of Swords where George writes, Rob having a plan. I'm going to go up to the, the causeway and we're gonna, I'm going to send these horses around this way. They're going to link up with the... Uh, they're going to link up with the uh, with, with the reeds, and we're all going to attack Moat Kaelin and take, take it that way. And we're going to go back to the north and kick out the Ironborn and never comes to pass. It's just that one moment where George strips it all away and Theon happens to get it right here, as he sometimes does once in a while. It's that uh, dramatic irony from, from uh, knowing the narrative structure and knowing how it's actually going to play out. And the characters uh, don't realize how prophetic they're being. Another example of that is when Theon says, Asha can keep the Iron Islands. And that might come true, too. If her story ends the same way as it does on the show, she will indeed end up in charge of the Ironborn. And while I think, obviously, her story is going to go in a different direction, because, like, she's not going to the east as she did in the show, I, I think it's it's a good bet that Asha will probably end up in charge of the Ironborn at the end. Do you think that's fair to say? I think so, too. I mean, there's there's the case that people were making before Season 8 came out, which may be true in A Song of Ice and Fire, that Asha will rule through Theon. Yeah, but yeah. I, that could still well be. 
I, that could still be the case, but I think like the foreshadowing here is actually that Asha is going to rule by her lonesome um, with, with Theon gone, likely dying at Winterfell. That feels like a much more emotionally satisfying conclusion to, to Theon's story in, in, in A Song of Ice and Fire. So another bit of foreshadowing here is when Lewin says that the battle for the North will be fought among the ruins of Moat Kaelin, emphasizing for the reader that when it comes to how we're going to sort the North out politically in the future, it really depends on who holds Moat Kaelin, who holds the key, who holds the doorway. And we will see the end result of that play out also from Theon's perspective in A Dance with Dragons. Again, a lot of time has passed and he's been forced into the Reek guys, but he's the one actually who helps end Ironborn control of Moat Kaelin on behalf of the Boltons. And it's another place where Ramsay, Snow, or Bolton at that point, promises friendship and safe passage to the Ironborn people, just like he promises friendship to Theon here. And then, of course, Reek is there eating with the dogs and from Reek's second chapter, and he hears the screams of the Ironborn being flayed by Ramsay. So never trust Ramsay if he promises you something any in any way, shape, or form. So despite the what seems like the utter destruction of Roger Cassell's army here in this chapter, some of his men actually do survive the battle and they melt away into the wolf's wood. And then as Stannis recounts in that letter he sends to John in John's seventh chapter in A Dance with Dragons, a lot of these guys end up joining up with Stannis' army, which creates an interesting dynamic where Stannis might know about the Bolton betrayal of the Starks here and might leverage that to his you know propaganda advantage. Although we are talking about Stannis here, so probably not. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting little tidbit. I kind of wish George hadn't brought those guys back because it does kind of expose a problem, I think, with this storyline as a result of George trying to hastily make it fit the Ironborn instead of the Lannisters, which is that really if, if any of Sir Roderick's army, if any of his men make it out of there alive, you'd think they'd be able to find a way of warning the rest of the North what happened. Like that, that Ramsey betrayed them, right. that the Boltons are active traitors. Like most of these guys are from Castle Kerwin, which is like right down the road. Mm-hmm. Did none of those guys make it back? Like there's no sign that Ramsey ever <laughs> conquered Castle Kerwin. You know what I mean? Right. To like cut off, like, so really logically, some of those guys should have gotten to a position where they could send warning to Rob. Hey, the Boltons are traitors. Don't trust them. That can't happen. So, you know. That this this is one of those, I think, uh, little slights of hand that George had to pull of getting this army out of the way, just so the Red Wedding can occur down the line. Not not a major deal. I just think it's kind of kind of a sign where you can see George having to juggle juggle a lot of eggs, mm-hmm. keep a lot of plates in the air, so to speak. Oh yeah. So Ramsay says that he wants Kyra. That's the woman he wants as his prize. And you know, when when we return to Theon's perspective in a dance with dragons, Ramsay has already hunted Kyra down. So unfortunately, he he makes good on that promise. Wow, yeah, that's such a horrifying memory of uh, of that Theon has. It does it it doesn't happen in Theon's chapters proper. It seems to have occurred right after they reached the Dreadfort, where, where Kyra lets him out, and then we find out that Ramsay had intentionally allowed Theon to escape in order to hunt him and Kyra down. And yeah, <laughs> Ramsay, it's, it's just a you know we we talk about Roos a lot, and Al Roos is just an excellent villain. In so many ways, and he's so he's like a Bond villain, as we talked about back in Arya Ten. Ramsey is is basically like a horror movie villain, right? Or, or a monster at the end of a horror movie. Like there's, he's just a great villain, but he's like a monster all around in every way, and just a psychological you know terrorist. I think for for Theon and for many characters in the Song of Ice and Fire. So finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, Ramsey says that his wife called him Ramsey Snow, but he thinks his last name is Bolton. 
Come a storm of swords, Jamie will witness King Tommen I of House Baratheon signing a writ legitimizing Ramsay as a Bolton, now in name, as well as deed. And that, uh, that helps Ramsay a little bit with the chip on his shoulder. The problem is it doesn't stop everyone from kind of treating him like a bastard, including his own father. <laughs> so Ramsay, this, he hasn't quite moved up in the world as much as he might want. There is that great irony there where, you know, Tommen is himself a bastard. <laughs> Right, and you know he's the one legitimizing Ramsay, even though he really doesn't have the authority to do that. So that's that. That's just a fun little game. I think that George plays with all these, uh, all these royal bastards, all these people pretending to be someone they're not. That's always fun. Mm-hmm. So to move into our uh, theory and discussion portion for the episode, we were, as we said earlier at the top of the episode, we were going to talk here about a question we received from Sir Tim, a small council patron, and the knight who was guided by voices, and he asks. Uh, a question for the next Theon episode. Why didn't George give Theon a POV or much of a storyline in A Storm of Swords? It's a really long book, and there was supposed to be a five-year gap after it was written. So that's, of course, a great question. Of all the POVs in The Clash of Kings, Theon is the one who drops out completely. He does not appear in A Storm of Swords. And that's not the case in the show. He, uh, Alfie Allen's Theon kept going in Season 3 after his storyline in Season 2 that lines up with Clash of Kings. So why do you think that might be, sir? Why, did, why does Theon drop off the map as a POV? It's it's a, it's a great question, and, and the question I would pose back is: Do we actually want to see the tortures inflicted on Theon Greyjoy? Because that would be all of the Theon chapters that would encompass the Storm of Swords, or at least the timeline thereof. Would we want to see Theon getting flayed, Theon losing his fingers, Theon losing his teeth, Theon getting castrated by by Ramsay Snow? I, I don't think so. Now. One of the things that was that was an interesting argument from season three is that they brought Theon back and they had to have Alf- Alfie Allen there and they had to introduce uh, Ewan, Ewan I can't pronounce the name Ivan Rion the guy who played Ramsay Ramsay Bolton in in, in the uh, in the show and they had to introduce him as well and you know what was the dynamic that was thrown was the was the term that was thrown about about what happened to Theon in season three it was torture porn right it was just Theon getting like tortured and getting mutilated and getting abused and it was just hard. Hard to watch. Now, I think you wrote really, really strongly about this, and maybe, maybe I'm, you, you might, may or may not remember this. I remember this. You wrote really strongly about this about how would how, how George pulls away at just like the moments where he doesn't want us to indulge in that feeling of just the the, the actual pain of someone the, of what they're experiencing. He would rather like us to see like you one fill in our minds with the imagination aspect angle of it, which is why like it's not explicitly confirmed that Theon is castrated, but Theon does enough like references to it that we actually, we, we can understand that. But also at the same time, it does get the feeling of being a little bit ex- exploitative, right? In terms of like writing, would you like to write like Theon getting tortured for, for four or five chapters? I'm not necessarily sure. I mean, it's not that George is necessarily like sparing the readers because George is, has a reputation of showing us the full brutality of, of what occurs. I mean, just we only need to look at Arya being marched up to Harrenhal in that chapter, which still sends shivers up my spine at how ter- terrible it is. But at the same time, I do think it's important to to note that, that that George wants us to be a little, at least one step removed from the terrible things that are happening here. Now, in 2004, George was asked something about Theon because someone asked him if Theon was going to be in A Feast for Crows because A Feast for Crows was relatively close to the horizon. And George said Theon won't be in A Feast for Crows, but that's not to say he won't turn up again in some future volume. He's not dead, though at times he wishes he were. And the question I pose back to you, sir, is do you think that 
Theon showing up in a, in a dance with, I mean, obviously his chapters are, are awesome and effective and amazing, but at the same time, like, would you have wanted to see the build up to Theon in a dance with dragons and all the chapters that would have occurred that showed the transformation of Theon into Reek? I, for me, the answer is no, but I turn the question over to you. I don't think so, especially. I think they would probably be pretty repetitive. And I think they, as you say, they are more powerful in our imagination than they would have actually been on the page. I think we can infer quite a bit. And I think there's just an immense power from the gap and from dealing with the... I think George wanted the allure of, of Reek as a POV title to kind of slap the reader around and force us to question, wait, who's, who is this? Whose mind are we in? And then gradually realize mm-hmm. it's Theon. There's real power to that, even though it's not really a surprise what's happening to Theon because he does come up a couple times in the Storm of Swords mentioned by other characters that uh, uh, Roos shows off a piece of Theon's skin that Ramsay has sent south and Gren mentions to Jon that Ramsay has taken Theon and is flaying him for what he did to the Stark boys. So it's not necessarily a shock but the the extent to which his identity has transformed I think is is really powerful and that I I think that's more powerful when it's not a gradual process when the reader has to has to catch up with it all at once because that is you know like you get the sense with Theon and Dance with Dragons every morning he wakes up he has to remember who he is and what he's like and what has happened and so the reader is in that position of having to reassemble his brain from fragments every day every chapter and I think that's that's a great way of, of getting in, you into it. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the show because it's much harder when you're dealing with actors that you have contracts with and you want to keep in the in in the audience mind. But I think George, uh, I think he understood that probably uh, less is more also with a character like Ramsey, uh, that, that would be, it would be easy to get tired of him. And the other thing is, I think that's interesting to think about is if you have a Theon POV in A Storm of Swords, even as, as presumably he's just in the dungeon the whole time he might be hearing things about what's going on in Northern politics. And it doesn't seem like anything happened in Northern politics in the Storm of Swords, really. Like after the, in between the sack of Winterfell and the Red Wedding, it seems like everyone in the North just sat around and went, la la la, guess, guess we're going to wait for, <laughs> guess we're going to just wait for Rob to get back. And I think that's not super realistic. It's kind of a weak spot in the storytelling. And I think George just didn't have much for the Northerners to do in that part of the story. So he just didn't need a POV there. So I think that's also why Theon doesn't have chapters. Theon's chapters in Dance are a beautiful character study, but they're also there to show you what's happening with the next stage of the war. And there was no next stage of the war in the North and the Storm of Swords. So that's like a chicken or the egg thing. Like, I don't know if he didn't have any storyline there, so he didn't write any Theon chapters, or if he didn't want to write Theon chapters. So he was like, "Eh, I'll just, I'll tell more Northern storylines later. I don't know which of those was first, but I think those are factors playing into it. I mean, I think like the the question brought up the five year gap, and I think that was something mm-hmm. that George was struggling with as well because he, at the time that he's writing a Storm of Swords, he figured that there would be a five year period between the end of a Storm of Swords and the start of a Dance with Dragons, in which things would happen in the North, but all be told in in flashback and, and things like that. But I, you know, the, the the I guess the takeaway is that you're supposed to feel like that Ramsey just eliminated any Northern politics for the time being, right? The Western part of the North, West of the White Knife has been essentially rendered blank by, by Ramsey and by, by the Ironborn, which leaves the, which opens the question about what, what is Wyman Manderly doing during, during all right. of this? What, all all these guys who show up in a dance with dragons, what are, what are they, what have they been up to this whole time? Yeah, that is kind of a question. It is. But there is an interesting point, and this comes from one of the people who's who's on our live chat, uh, Ka- Caitlin Kriegel, who makes a makes a really interesting point about the uh, the narrative's reason why we have the blank 
portion of Theon's story in A Storm of Swords and the pick up with him in A Dance of Dragons, where she says, I think it's really effective because the reader feels justified when we all hear that Ramsay is being, quote unquote, punished. But when we read it, dot, dot, dot. And, and I think that that's actually a really effective way that George does storytelling. Again, probably not planned because he wasn't really planning on, maybe not necessarily planned, but at the same time, he does end up identifying as a way that he can talk the story in which he shows us the fruits of us really wishing that Theon would get his ass like just flayed and tortured and things like that for all the horrible things that he did. When we actually catch up with him in A Dance with Dragons, he becomes a figure of immense pity and eventual sympathy uh, given the state that he's in when he when we catch up with him in Reek's first chapter in the Dreadfort and then the eventual abuses, additional abuses that he suffers under Ramsay and Bruce Bolton. And we start to be like, actually, you know, maybe our, our desire to, for people to be tortured and flayed is, is, is bad. You know, that that's something that we may not necessarily should be should be seeking after. So that that becomes a really good uh, narrative touchstone that George uses for for A Dance with Dragons. I totally agree with Caitlin. It's definitely kind of a, a gambit. He's he's playing with the reader and he wants a, he wants our, our sympathies to be to be questioned in that regard. So that that, that structure only helps for sure. Absolutely. So thank you to Sir Tim for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions we answer here on the Nauticast podcast, you are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, bonus episodes, merch, shoutouts, and more. Absolutely. And thank you, Sir Tim, for the question. It was a great way to close out this episode and close out the Greyjoy story in A Clash of Kings. We have three chapters left in A Clash of Kings before we are done this book. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ASOIAF. You can follow us on Twitter at ASOIAF or shoot us an email at ASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at PortQuentin on Twitter or PortQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Cat Napping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Septon Mariful Head Affair, Lady Silverwing. Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn. Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands. Lord Young of the Ghost Woods. Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil. Sir Will of the Narco Syndicalist Commune. Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Donatar Castle. Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids. Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes. Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, Sydney of House Co., Princess of the Finley Black Hotties and the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, and Lord Peter. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you folks so very, very much. So, join us in two weeks' time for A Clash of Kings Tyrion 15, as Tyrion suffers a series of nightmares, only to wake up in his even worse reality. But, 
next week we'll be back for our slosh slash drunk review of Zack Snyder's Justice League, which I hear is a masterpiece. Am I hearing this correctly about the, the early reviews of the movie? Like three Citizen Kanes in a row. That's 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 what I'm hearing. Like 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 seventeen versions of Seven Samurai. No, no, it's gonna it's gonna be a delightful time getting drunk and talking about this thing that somehow exists. Our four hour baby, the Snyder Cut. That'll be a hoot. Cannot wait to do that with you, sir, and with you all watching. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons again for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for Justice League and in two weeks' time for Clash of Kings Tyrion 15.